dodges I ride in this wind On my good horse I call you My shiny Becker writes that humans cause evil by wanting to triumph over evil in the quest for immortality. Our most oppressive and violent and brutal behaviors, uh, Becker says, are responses to our death anxiety. The core problem is that we've got to invest in these worldviews and then we've got to defend them. And in defending them, we often end up hurting others. The most brutal and primitive style of coping with death is to dream that you can master it by killing or destroying other people. We commit the greatest evil by trying to escape from evil, by trying to create a paradise on earth. We are literally looking for things to label evil, so that once we've done that, we can fight them. Today our nation saw evil. We will not rest until this evil is driven from our world. And I will not allow the people of this country to be intimidated by evil cowards. We demonize folks. We see them as the all-encompassing repositories of evil, the removal of which would make life on earth as it is in heaven. So more people have been killed in the name of God and country than by all the serial murderers put together. It's just a drop in the bucket compared to how much killing has gone on out of loyalty, patriotism, love for God and country. You're listening to episode 726 of Unwelcome Guests, The Flight from Death. I'm Robin Upton. Exceptionally this week, we begin with the dedication. This show is dedicated to Lily Pierce, a young woman whom I never met, but without whose tragic death on the roads I would not have made this show. In 2013, an unwelcome guest's listener, David Pierce, recommended a book to me that he had been recommended after his daughter's tragic death, Ernest Becker's Denial of Death, and at the time, perhaps due to my mother's cancer, I wasn't very assiduous in seeking a PDF or an audiobook, and I let the matter slip. Well, I've now followed the matter up and I'm very glad that I did so because I think that book is nothing less than a masterpiece. I can quite understand why the academic establishment didn't really want to have much to do with it at the time. Not helped, of course, Ernest Becker labelled a cultural anthropologist for the sake of having a label on him took a very cross-disciplinary and I think commendably honest approach seeking wisdom from all quarters which he brought to bear on the central topic of the fear of death his main contention being while our own mortality and fear of death is not much talked about it is nevertheless an extremely important topic much thought about and psychologically repressed. Now, if that sounds slightly 
wishy-washy, hand-wavy, well then I haven't done the man justice. His book is tightly argued, well-referenced, and cites a lot of other great thinkers from different academic disciplines, principally psychology, uh, also philosophy, cultural anthropology, literature, uh, a wide range. As an introduction to Becker's thought, I've found a 90-minute film, The Flight from Death, which I'm going to be adapting for this show. I thought, let's begin with the voice of David Pierce. This is from an interview in 2012. The full interview is linked from this show's webpage, unwelcomeguests.net slash 726. We're just going to hear one short question, and this is from the Future Primitive podcast. Please talk about a practical way in which a person who is not in grief can communicate and be helpful to someone who has had a great grief. That's a fine question because um, it's most difficult for those who have not experienced some sort of a deep disconnection with with everything that they knew before to really relate to this because um, we are all sort of trained unconsciously uh, from the time we're small children to to act and think a certain way in Western culture and um, it's different in some of the other countries and cultures. Uh, uh, Norway is uh, in some ways a lot more open to the ideas of uh, grieving and, and recognizes that. Villages in Africa and in South America, some of the Latin countries, the Central American countries, um, and Spain, Italy, uh, they're a bit more open to to everyone being sort of aware that people die and grieve. Uh, in the United States, not so much. Uh, death is often talked about. Uh, movies, uh, you know... Uh, horror films, uh, jokes about death and that kind of thing, but never really seriously. Uh, in fact, later on, I, uh, a- after Lily died, I realized that those are a way of sort of talking about death, but avoiding the subject, finding ways to keep it in their minds, but sort of uh, diminish it somehow as a way of kind of triumphing over it without really having to face it. So it's most difficult for people who have not experience deep grief to relate on the same same wavelength people may think you know that they're really sad for the person who has lost a loved one or or a friend and um, they may genuinely feel feel sorry for them and want to help but oftentimes it's they don't really know where to go now the longer in the tooth that i get the more i come to see in gatto's admonition that the inevitability of death is must be an important part of curriculum of what young people learn to become properly educated and it's one that circumstances taught me uh, perhaps that's why I seem to understand this um, in any case I would encourage you even if you live in a country such as the United States and here in Bangladesh when I discuss the way in which old people tend to be sent to homes surrounded by people of the same vintage, more or less as a kind of warehousing, 
um, the general understanding is that this is a pretty barbaric way to deal with one's nearest and dearest, and I must say I tend to agree. Now, just before we hear the film, I think I should point out the main two echoes of Unwelcome Guest's themes that it set off in my mind. Number one, you may not be surprised to hear, is money, how money is a proxy for immortality. They would call it an immortality symbol, something that people can use to quell their fear of death, never mind the fact that it won't work, uh, as they will explain in the film. This fulfills a psychologically calming function. And the second echo is the war on terror, as we heard in episode 721. Those who organize false flags are not just looking at numbers of fatalities, they're also looking to communicate meaning and to instill fear. Well, I can't believe the importance of Becker's work has been lost on those who've spent so long in all those think tanks researching how to make people afraid. Now, this is a radio adaptation of a film which has been posted on YouTube, so if you'd like to watch the film itself and have internet access, then I shall link to the original from this show's webpage, unwelcomeguest.net slash 726. To have emerged from nothing, to have a name, consciousness of self, deep inner feelings, an excruciating inner yearning for life and self-expression. And with all this, yet to die. Transcendental Media presents a film by Patrick Shen and Greg Benick. Narrated by Gabrielle Byrne. Flight from Death. The Quest for Immortality. Humankind has always been restless. Never satisfied with our physical limitations, we have always strived for more. With machines we conquer gravity and travel faster and farther than any other animal. We explore the heavens, the last great frontier. Landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. And we manipulate our own biology through medical science. In defiance of nature, we have manufactured the means to become rulers of the natural world. What is left to conquer? And are we satisfied? Since time immemorial, we have battled our greatest limitation. One which seems to render our efforts to overcome and conquer insignificant. Every day we participate in a multitude of activities to distance ourselves from harm and death.
But beneath the surface, we are aware that these day-to-day -day strategies are doomed to fail. We will die eventually. And all of this will come to an end. Human beings find themselves in quite the predicament. We have the mental capacity to ponder the infinite, seemingly capable of anything yet housed in a heart-pumping, breath-gasping, decaying body. We are godly, yet creaturely. Death is the end of the self. It is perhaps the ultimate mystery. We may never know what death really is and whether it marks the end of everything or, as many believe, the beginning of something else. Yet we do know that death is something to be avoided. What are we to do with death? And why do we fear it? Merlin Maury, Professor of Philosophy and Religion. If we don't even know what death is, then why should we fear it? Irvin D. Yalom, existential psychotherapist. The fear of death is absolutely ubiquitous. It's hardwired into us. For all the things that we don't know about what follows death, uh, there, there are plenty of things we know about what precedes death to make it unwelcome and even uh, seem like an evil interruption, and that is um, life itself. Sam Keane, author and philosopher. At the gut level, my feeling is death is unacceptable. I did not sign that contract. I looked at the small print and everything else, it's unacceptable. Uh, that's just sort of a gut feeling in the, in, in the sense that we love life. Uh, death, is a, death is an insult to our spirit. Added to that, of course, is the fear of the process of dying, which is different, of the, the indignity of it, of the loss of control, of the, of the pain associated with it. Others will say what they fear is, is leaving everyone behind, uh, or they fear that the, the, the sadness they will cause uh, others. August of 1999, my life was forever changed because I was given a diagnosis of infiltrating ductal carcinoma, which, as medical people know, is a very common form of breast cancer. I have gone into an advanced state of breast cancer with metastatic disease to the bone. And I'm basically in the battle for my life right now. I don't know what tomorrow may bring. 
The average prognosis for a person with metastatic bone disease is two to five years. I'm now in year three, so according to medical statistics, I probably only have two years to live. We have capacities to think symbolically, to make one thing stand for another, which of course is the basis of language. We have the capacity to project ourselves in time and imagine things that have not yet happened. We have the capacity to think in terms of cause and effect. We have the capacity to reflect back on ourselves and look at ourselves from a perspective outside of ourselves. All of these capacities play a central role in the system through which humans regulate their behavior. Sheldon Solomon, professor of psychology, Skidmore College. On the one hand, we have these minds that are capable uh, of just really embracing the entire universe on all fronts. You know, we can think of the old days, we can think of five million years from now. We can think about what it would be like to be tap dancing on the Great Wall of China while we stand here by the Golden Gate Bridge. So we can ponder our present circumstances in light of future possibilities and modify our behavior accordingly. All of that is tremendous and all of it is highly problematic because it renders us as human beings uniquely aware of the inevitability of our demise. Dan Lichty, professor of social work, Illinois State University. We then recognize that death happens to us. I have to live with the, the knowledge that I will die. All organisms have a, a life instinct, an instinct to live. Our species has, has as much of that as any other species, but we also have the intelligence to know that, it, that we're doomed. Our survival presents a problem for us because we have the kind of consciousness that makes us aware from a pretty early point in life that that desire to live, to feed and live and survive, um, is ultimately going to fail. That creates a cognitive problem for us. It creates a potentially enormous amount of anxiety that we have to do something with. The explicit awareness that you're a breathing piece of defecating meat, the destined to die and ultimately no more significant than, uh, let's say, a lizard or a potato, uh, is not especially uplifting. Fear is a response to danger. Animals experience fear. But animals live in the present moment. When animals experience fear, they're experiencing a present danger, which is either a predator or a fire or some threat to their life. And their response to that is the fight-flight reaction. They either fight the predator or flee from the predator. We also experience fear when we're confronted by a present danger. We can anticipate future dangers, and we can imagine future dangers. But the physiology is the same, fight-flight reaction because the body can't tell the difference between the past and the future. Anxiety is the anticipation or imagination of a future danger. So we're all anxious about the future because we know we're going to die, we just don't know when. We carry a burden of anxiety that no other species carries. And one day, the heart just quits. Yes, he looked healthy. Since the beginning of recorded history, and likely long before that, the awareness of our own mortality has haunted us. We've gone to great lengths to forget, deny, and overcome death. 
From the ancient myth of Osiris to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, history is rich with tales of the afterlife and of men and women, kings and pharaohs, rising from their graves and returning from the dead. In 1839, archaeologists discovered in a region that includes parts of modern-day Iraq, Syria and Turkey, one of the oldest known and most profound literary works. Inscribed on a series of tablets which date back as early as 2000 BCE, we find the Epic of Gilgamesh, the story of an ancient Sumerian king who, inspired by the death of a close friend, embarks on a journey to find the secret of immortality. A Chinese proverb instructs, Treat death as life. In ancient China, Emperor Qing Su Huangdi spent his life hoping to avoid death. He commissioned doctors to concoct potions and sent ships out to sea in search of islands where immortals supposedly lived. Fearful that his efforts might ultimately fail, he enlisted more than half a million conscripts to build a magnificent underground tomb surrounded by over 7,000 life-size terracotta soldiers in military formation. Upon the emperor's death, living servants were also buried with him. In every corner of the world, myths of immortality and the means to achieve it have been at the heart of people's most cherished beliefs. From magical elixirs to elaborate tombs furnished with spectacular treasures, there was no limit to humankind's imagination and no possibility left unexplored. So how are things different today? While many of these antiquated methods still exist in some form or another, our technologies are advancing exponentially by the year. Yet, our death anxiety is still as present as ever. In our efforts to combat death and the aging process, scientists have now developed the means to reverse certain aspects of aging, while others claim to be on the verge of solving the problem of death altogether. Despite our technologies and desire for miracle cures, the reality of death has not changed. Infectious and parasitic disease will claim the lives of approximately 18 million people this year. Heart disease and other circulatory diseases will kill 16 million. Another 5 million will die in traffic accidents. In total, 54 million people alive this very moment will be dead in the next 12 months. Anxiety pervades every bit of our human experience. In part, we respond to that anxiety by trying to um, feed ourselves in literal ways and secure our safety and survival in literal ways. But knowing that's ultimately doomed, we use our consciousness, our cleverness, our intellectual abilities um, to redefine the problem. Cultural anthropologist Ernest Becker spent his career investigating the human problem of death awareness. Awarded the Pulitzer Prize in 1974, 
The denial of death is a culmination of his life's work, a synthesis of the wisdom of the ages. Once referred to as one of the few great books ever written, the denial of death formulates what has been considered to be a science of humankind, a broad theory that attempts to explain why we do the things we do. Ernest Becker appeared out of nowhere. Jeff Greenberg, professor of psychology, University of Arizona. Ernest Becker, fairly early in his career, developed a sense that what he wanted to do was sort of bring together uh, a lot of the knowledge that was being accumulated in the different social sciences and even outside, even the humanities as well. That led him into an exploration of the writings of the ages. He said, I want to understand very broad questions about what it is that underlies human behavior. And Becker's position was if you take that quest seriously, then you can't confine your inquiry to any particular discipline. He said that big questions require wide-ranging scrutiny and that no discipline should be disqualified from active consideration. What he insists is that uh, the human species solved the existential problem of death uh, by utilizing the same intellectual skills that, uh, in an odd way, created the problem in the first place, and that's our vast intelligence and ability to think in abstract and symbolic ways uh, in the service of constructing and maintaining what he calls culture. For Becker, culture is a collective fabrication a shared set of beliefs about the nature of reality, developed to help us deal with our death anxiety. Culture provides meaning and helps us to maintain a sense of security in an unsure world. Professor Robert J. Lifton, psychohistorian. Death has always been an enormous fear in every culture and every time, and much of cultural arrangements have to do with ways of coping with this fear. Our cultural conceptions of reality have evolved in order to help us deal with our knowledge of our own mortality. All around the world we take part in activities designed to remember the dead. Remembrance is one way we deal with the brevity of life. Here one moment, gone the next, but never forgotten. With the advent of photography in the 19th century, families would often pose for photographs with the corpses of their loved ones, as if the dead were still living. Physical mementos with images of people were rare. The post-mortem photograph provided families a means to remember their loved ones, as they were in life. When we look at history, at least, it seems very clear that from as long as it can be recorded uh, and across cultures and across vast amount of time and space, that uh, death denial seems to be rather central to all uh, cultural constructions. We cannot be human without living in culture. We are meaning-hungry creatures as human beings. We require meaning, and whether we talk about it or not, we're always living within meaning, whether it has to do with family or some kind of work or country or goal. Uh, it may and usually is rather unspoken. Culture provides meaning, first of all, by giving us a sense of where we've come from 
every culture that we're aware of does have some account of the origin of the universe. Some people believe that in the beginning of all life, a god created heavens and the earth itself. This god then populated the earth with various creatures, but gave dominion to humankind. The Fulane tribe in Mali uh, believes that the earth was created out of a giant drop of milk, and I, I think that's quite nice. And the, the thought is, is that uh, when God was getting things going, there had to be some sustenance for the original creatures. And so the earth started that way. And then the Yoruba in Nigeria believes that originally the earth was just water. And then at the moment of creation, uh, God came and put a silver or some kind of metal plate on the water. And then on the plate, he took a uh, snail shell and turned it upside down and filled it with dirt, put that on the plate. And then he put a rooster on the plate next to the snail shell. And as the rooster pecked the dirt out of the shell and it hit the water, that formed the continents as we know them. And I, I think that's quite beautiful. David Loy, Professor of International Studies in Bunkyo University, Japan. Buddhism does have a creation story, like the other great religions. It's found in the Agana Sutra. Uh, they don't talk about a particular point of time when the universe began. Rather, you get both in Hinduism and Buddhism the idea that the universe has been going on for an immeasurably long period of time where world systems are created and destroyed, and you really can't trace it back to the very beginning. While creation stories provide the members of a collective with a sense of meaning, it is roles within those cultures that give individuals a specific and personal sense of importance. Culture helps us out by essentially giving each of us uh, a roadmap that gives us prescriptions of acceptable action. Uh, all cultures have social roles. Uh, with associated standards of valued conduct, the satisfaction of which allows you to perceive yourself as a significant individual. But it's only through uh, a culturally constructed sense of reality that we know what it means to be a valuable or an important figure. So uh, in American culture, if you can stuff a rubber ball through a metal hoop, you're a genius and we can pay you many millions of dollars. Uh, but there's other cultures in which that would be considered quite worthless. It'd be better if you could throw a sharp stick through a fish's head. Uh, and so culture really gives us opportunities to feel valuable. Many people feel connected to the eternal through their religion. From the ancient Egyptians to the modern day, the idea of an eternal soul has inspired us, provided a sense of security, and soothed our anxiety. After all, if the soul will live forever, then what need is there to fear death? The concept of soul is, a, is an immortality ideology. I had an interesting conversation some years ago with Paul Tillich, the great Protestant theologian. And Tillich told me that almost from the beginning, the more brilliant theologians always had a sense of the symbolic, of the idea of the eternal, 
rather than the literal sense of eternal life. Uh, that literal sense of eternal life was, was in a way given to the masses by the church as part of its way of controlling them, whereas the brilliant thinkers and outstanding theologians had a different sense, closer to what I'd call the symbolic. Our experience of the world is embedded within symbols. We've excelled in this world because we've been able to make one thing stand for another. Language, for example, enables us to communicate, work together to achieve goals, and plan for the future. Symbols also serve as concrete manifestations of our most cherished beliefs and values. They are tangible representations of abstract ideas and meanings. Without symbols, it would be difficult to sustain our faith in ideas. When the literal world fails us, we turn to the symbolic. In the case of death, if the battle cannot be won in the physical world, then perhaps we can gain a sense of victory in the symbolic. Along comes Darwin and the Enlightenment and science, and then you have people starting to think more seriously about the idea that maybe this, this is all there is, that it's just, we're just these physical materials that will decay and die. And that's it. What happens then, right? If you don't have that literal immortality thing, how do you cope? Instead of simply trying to live on in the physical world, um, we take that whole dilemma and we move it to the symbolic level. We invest ourselves in symbols of that we get from our culture and from religion that come to represent us. We identify with them. We see ourselves in them. And instead of trying to live on literally, physically, we try instead to make sure that our symbols of immortality, our culture, our religion, are seen as powerful and durable, and that through their endurance, we feel that something of ourselves lives on with them. One aspect of it is a collective sense of immortality. If you can get a sense of being part of something bigger than yourself, that you feel is immortal, that you feel will transcend your individual death, then that's a symbolic kind of immortality. But also there are individual ways, and we all know this. Uh, Americans certainly know this. We're, we're going to write, write the great book, or we're going to do the, the, the great documentary. try to figure out in what ways um, our culture defines the good life and we try to excel at it. I distinguish myself and I stand out as special and when I do that I've got a comparative gap between myself and other people and in my mind I sort of see those other people as merely mortal and I see myself as somehow transcending the limit of mere mortality. I look around being everybody represents just the way human beings naturally are, but I become supernatural. So um, I try for heroism as a way of making myself believe I can transcend the limits of my mortality. Our symbolic attempts to conquer death permeate every aspect of our lives. We live in a world shaped by our imagination where brick and stone is not just brick and stone, but a symbol of achievement, of triumph, and of permanence. 
urge for immortality manifests itself as creativity. And so there, there comes our urge to build, our urge to make a mark in the world, our urge to show that we've been here, you know, carve our name even on a tree, just to let it be known that we're here and that we matter. Kirby Farrell, Professor of English, University of Massachusetts. Culture as a whole is basically a, an inexhaustible survey of immortality symbols. The law makes you feel that culture is stable and will last forever. Architecture. We build monuments. We build religious buildings out of what historically have been the most enduring materials known to human beings. American utopianism at the moment tends to be consumer utopia. It's associated with money and the ability to command the wills of other people by paying them something, which in effect is a magnifying your own self. It's magnifying your own strength. If you can potentially make anyone in the world do your bidding because if you're a checkbook, then in effect you have everyone in the world extending your power. You have millions of hands and arms. Wealth is a kind of symbolic uh, barrier against death. And I think unconsciously we think, you know, if I have enough of it, it isn't going to get me. I can buy my way clear of this. The tragic flip side of this experience is that if you don't have money, you're in effect surrendering your ability to choose or to control other people, or to put it another way, you're radically vulnerable. The ultimate state of being without money is to be a slave. When you don't have a zillion dollars, whose fault is it in the U.S. of A? It's your fault, and you feel like a piece of crap. It's not surprising that a third of the American population is depressed. If our immortality depends on the durability and endurance of our symbols and symbolic systems, what happens when those symbols fall or fail us? Once again, our symbols and our efforts to become something more than we are are shown to be just as fleeting as life itself. We experience a sort of symbolic death. I'm truly and deeply sorry for pain and hurt and anger and confusion that will result from all of this. On a social scale, the loss of jobs, relationships and our sense of self-worth in our day-to-day -day lives are all experienced as a sort of social death, an overwhelming sense that we have not achieved the standards set by our culture. In effect, to be in a state of social death is to be without money and without the ability to have an influence on other people's behavior, and in turn, to be totally vulnerable to the wills of the people around you. And therefore, from my point of view, social death is analogous to, and in many ways, just as disturbing and terrifying as real death. And it's not surprising to me at all that if you look around the world again and again, you see people threatened by social death responding with the kinds of uh, vehement emotional reactions that you would associate with with a more explicit threat to life and limb, which is to say either deep depression 
or volatile aggression, uh, a kind of berserk violence. It's been alleged that Mr. Reza phoned a third party on uh, January the 4th and said something similar to, quote, they have taken my job, they have taken my life, I have nothing to lose, I don't have anything to lose, I'll take my guns and go to San Onofre and whack a bunch of people. No uh, Robert shot the other members of the family and then took his own life. imagery tends to haunt us and we try to constantly transcend it with affirmations of life or experiences of life imagery. When we have meaningful kinds of connection with other people, uh, movement, growth, development in our lives, challenges, and integrity, a feeling of belonging to some larger, more meaningful whole. That's what it takes to make us feel fully alive and vibrant and like our, our, our lives count for something. And it can, for instance, include the producing and raising and nurturing of children, which are both a source of love and affection for us, but also a symbol of the human future and the process of larger human connectedness. And that's why after large-scale destruction after the Holocaust or after Hiroshima, many people sought to marry and have children because they wanted to reassert life, feelings of life, images of life, and these were absolutely crucial. In August, of this year, I'm going to be having a double mastectomy done with full reconstruction the same day, which is going to amount to several hours of surgery. I'm trying to keep myself busy doing other things rather than just focus every day on the fact that, my God, in a few weeks I'm going to have my breast cut off. I just can't let it take over my life. I just, I just ref and that's why I'm having the surgery, is so that I'm saying back to the cancer, no, you can't have me yet. I'm not ready to go. I see it as a challenge. Cancer may kill me, but it's never going to kill my spirit. Good. Are you ready for this? 
Striving for immortality nurtures and maintains us. The byproducts of immortality striving can uplift us through our darkest days. And there's nothing, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, we're in a tough situation, and you know that helps us through, and that, and that's fine. And a lot of great things have been done for immortality purposes. Van Gogh painted those paintings, and we, you know. If we enjoy his paintings, then we profit from that. So a lot of our immortality striving, you know, has led to a lot of great things in terms of advancing, you know, human happiness and enjoyment of life and and that sort of thing. You would think that striving for immortality would be an endlessly good thing. The more of it, the better. But at the same time, our immortality ideologies often get us into trouble and create problems. As the tragic history around us keeps dramatizing. The drive toward immortality is very likely to turn into a rage for survival, what I would call survival greed or survival rage. One of the easiest ways to make yourself feel more than mortal is to stand as the conqueror of someone else. So there's this. There is a tendency to want to lift yourself up by elbowing other people down, and that can be done in socially acceptable ways—sports teams, whatever, getting the promotion at work over the other, over your colleague. But it also can manifest itself in violence. If culture helps us deny or stave off death, then the existence of other cultures, or even differing others within our own culture. Can pose a threat to our psychological and emotional stability. Tolerance is an ambitious goal given the differences we encounter every day. If ultimately there can only be one truth, then the other supposed truths must be wrong. The existence of other conceptions of reality forces us to question our own belief system, and therefore, our claims to immortality. If I believe that God created the Earth in six days before taking a well-deserved break, and then I run into somebody、uh, like the Fulani folks in Mali who think that the Earth was created out of a giant drop of milk, well, if he's right,、uh, I've got a problem. What we generally do when when this happens is to engage in a host of、uh, what turn out to be rather unsavory behaviors that、uh, serve a defensive compensatory function that allows us to restore our own psychological equanimity by bolstering our faith in our particular perspective. And so the first thing that we normally do when we run into somebody different. Is to just dismiss them、uh, as an inferior form of life. Sure, the African dude believes that God created the earth out of a giant drop of milk, but you know these are ignorant savages worshiping piles of sticks and mud, and they don't have email and cable television. And by derogating them, you sort of diffuse the threat. But they keep, you know, but they're doing okay. They're no less happy than we are. How could that be? So usually derogation's not enough. So we try to assimilate others into our worldview because if we can sell our worldview to them and they buy it, that's a very strong validation that we are right. 
And so the most obvious example of this, of course, is missionary activity. There were these African civilizations. They were doing quite fine, thank you. Uh, and we march in. We give it one of these. You're Catholic now. Let's play bingo. Uh, and in a couple of minutes, destroyed thousands of years of perfectly viable indigenous cultures. You convert them. And if you successfully do that, and that's been successfully done many, many times, then you get even increased faith that your way is the right way and your God is the right God. The whole Cold War uh, was really a massive effort between two death-denying ideologies, capitalism and communism, uh, to extend their sphere of influence throughout as much of the world as possible. Sometimes what you can do is, if there's an alternative worldview that is implicitly suggesting that yours may not be the best or yours may not be absolutely true, you could sort of incorporate certain aspects of that alternative worldview into your own and thereby diffuse the threat. And uh, we like to use the example of the, the hippie subculture that, that developed in America in the, in the mid-60s. What, what mainstream America did was they incorporated some of the appealing aspects of the hippie subculture into the mainstream culture and cut off the really threatening aspects. One of the things the hippies is they started wearing blue jeans. Blue jeans before the hippies came along were something that was worn by a certain population of workers in this country. But they say, you know what? Appearance is bull. We're going to wear blue jeans. And that had some appeal. So what mainstream America did is say, okay, blue jeans are going to get popular? Fine. Now we're going to have designer blue jeans. Right? And it can become a status symbol, which completely is contrary to the original message of why the hippies started wearing blue jeans. Another example is granola bars. I think it's a good example. Granola bars, getting back to nature, simple foods, non-processed foods. Now when you go to store, you buy chocolate-covered granola bars with like, you know, 500 ingredients. These are methods of coping that originate in our subconscious. They linger beneath the surface of our actions. However, what happens when these methods fail and the threat to one's immortality is not sufficiently diminished? For one's culture to continue serving its death-denying function, the threat must be dealt with at any cost. It's a fight-or-flight reaction. The derogation, assimilation and accommodation of others are potentially intense, direct and brutal, are no match for the horror which results from the fourth means of dealing with differing others. Annihilation. Who's right? Let's see who's right. Uh, you know, my God's better than your God, and we will kick your ass to prove it. As we look at human history, especially the last several hundred years, a major cause for world conflict are religious differences. Ultimately, uh, most armed conflicts are ideological in nature. Sure, there's political and economic issues. We don't want to be simple-minded about that. And yet, when you look at most of the protracted conflicts that often go over the course of centuries or thousands of years, what you find is that they invariably come down to uh, people who deny the right of other folks to even exist. And our argument would be that that's because people are psychologically intolerant of other individuals that don't share their death-denying illusions. 
1993 study estimated that as many as 175 million lives were deliberately extinguished during the 20th century due to politically motivated carnage. As we are beginning to see, political and social conflicts have deep psychological motivation. However, these motivations are not exclusive to world leaders, dictators and military strategists. They reside in each of us, along with the potential for limitless violence. I think what we see in the Middle East is an obvious example where you have the uh, Palestinians saying we want to push the Israelis into the ocean. You have the Israelis responding, you know, with the quaint phrase, the only good Arab is a dead Arab. And, you know, that's not the basis for any rational political discourse. You know, that's the histrionic ranting uh, of the kind of fundamentalism that I think uh, betrays the, the utterly psychological nature of these kinds of concerns. We are Palestinians. We have our rights, and this is our country. Enter the team of Sheldon Solomon, Tom Puzinski, and Jeff Greenberg. For the last 20 years, this trio and their colleagues have been conducting empirical laboratory experiments to substantiate the claims of Ernest Becker about the effects of death denial. They've conducted over 150 studies in support of what they call terror management theory. These groundbreaking studies display that when reminded of death, test subjects do indeed react aggressively towards those who are different and positively towards those who are similar. In, a sense, we're many gods. in the early 1980s, when we started speaking in public about Becker's ideas, some folks were intrigued, some folks were horrified. Uh, you're an assemblage of blood and guts and organs that should a knife impact upon your belly at an unfortunate angle would spill out on the pavement just like you see those squashed animals on the side of the road. But what most people said is, look, um, we don't know what to do with these ideas. It's like poetry. Uh, it may be interesting, but there's no way that you can actually test them. Uh, and this is where our training as experimental social psychologists was actually put to good use. Terror management theory came out of, of the writings of Ernest Becker. Um, his writings uh, answered some questions that, that, that we had been asking in our own work. We were social psychologists and we were very focused on empirical research. What we said is, well, okay, uh, let's try and think about ways of taking all of these ideas and let's really boil them down into some basic uh, statements about the nature of reality that we could then use to generate hypotheses and go out and actually test. The first component of terror management theory states that individuals need to sustain faith in a meaningful worldview. The second component states that individuals need to feel as though they are valued, protected members, objects of significance within this worldview. Psychologists would generally call this self-esteem. And if we can sustain these two psychological constructs, then we can function relatively securely in the world. And if these, if these constructs are threatened, then we're going to feel anxiety and have a need to defend those constructs. So we develop what we call the mortality salience hypothesis. And all that says is, look, if culture serves a death-denying function, then if you remind people that they're going to die, that should momentarily 
really increase the need for the death-denying aspects of their particular beliefs about reality. And that should be reflected by their reactions to other individuals who either bolster or support those beliefs or who undermine those beliefs by either being hostile to them or merely different from them. The very first study that we did was with municipal court judges in, in Tucson, Arizona. Judges have a kind of clear set of values that are part of their worldview, and that is to uphold the law. And so what we thought is that if we make some judges think about their own death, they should become more punitive toward a lawbreaker. So half the judges, on a random basis, were given questionnaires that asked them about their own death. Half were not given such a questionnaire. And then we had them actually look at uh, an actual court case. The most common case uh, in municipal court in Tucson is uh, solicitation of prostitution. They were simply asked to recommend a bond for the prostitute. Okay. What we found is the judges who were reminded of their own death before setting bond for the alleged prostitute recommended a bond of $455. The control judges, who were not reminded of their own death, set a bond, an average bond, of $50. In another study, Christian test subjects were asked to complete a questionnaire intended to determine how people form impressions of others. What the subjects didn't realize is that the researchers were actually making determinations about them. Embedded within some questionnaires were questions specifically formulated to make the reader think about his or her own death. The students were then asked to give their impressions of two fictitious individuals who on paper shared similar personality traits but differed in religious affiliation. And the hypothesis was that after the Christian subjects thought about their own death, they should be especially positive in their reactions to a fellow Christian student and especially negative toward a Jewish student. And that's exactly what we found. The students who did not receive death reminders showed no preference in their evaluations. These results were important indicators that attitudes towards others change when one is confronted with one's own death. However, the results did not speak to behavioral changes. And so one example of a study that, that we've done to, to test this idea was a study in which we wanted to see if reminding people of their own death would make them more reluctant to use cultural symbols or icons in inappropriate ways. For this study, Subjects were asked to participate in what they were told were research experiments designed to explore both personality and creative problem solving. Once again, subjects completed personality questionnaires, some of which contained death reminders. 